right. Welcome to the Creating Structure podcast, podcast number two, live from Creating Structure Studios in Stowe, Ohio. Uh, great to be with you. Um, thanks, everybody, for listening to the first podcast. I'm excited today. Let's welcome Michael Kohler to the show. Mike, welcome. Thank you, John. Pleasure to be here, and thanks for inviting me. You're welcome. And uh, Mike and I know each other pretty well because we started in the industry together and because we work together. But um, today's topic is going to be on the curtain wall, glazing, facade, industry, uh, partly at the request of Katie Devlin with the National Glass Association and Glass Magazine, and partly because that's what we do. And we do it well. (laughs) So hopefully nobody has snoozed off yet. Get your caffeine, get your tea, um, get ready to listen. We're going to be talking about delegated design and engineering and supply chain and all the things associated with the curtain wall and glazing and glass industry and current and future trends. Um, But before we do that, let's... Let's get a bio on you, Mike. So introduce yourself. Where are you from? What's your background? Uh, I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, Lived here most of my life. Did a couple stints overseas as part of my career uh, here in the past. Uh, My my education was uh, architectural background at Kent State University and then continuing studies at the University of Wisconsin, primarily in masonry design and construction, and a number of other continuing education-type opportunities, whether it be through industry association. Uh, Part of my career path took me down uh, the legal front of things, so I had several uh, continuing education opportunities in that space. And a lot of education opportunities, just being exposed to other experts and people in the industry, which I found to be probably the most practical and real learning. That's pretty common in this business. Yeah, Uh, very much so. I think uh, we're in an industry, and hopefully most people are in a space where continual learning is a theme, and we've got to continue to advance, make mistakes, learn from those mistakes, and share them with our peers. Yeah. Yeah, it's an eclectic industry in terms of people's backgrounds. Um, So let's go back a little further. So you went to high school here, you went to college here, um, but where did you start your work in the curtain wall and exterior facade waterproofing business? Well, it started... When I was about 16 years old, I was actually working for a small local manufacturer called Mid-American Shelter Systems, hmm. and their specialty was actually the RTA, Transit Authority-type shelters that people stand in while they're waiting for a bus or other modes of transportation, but we also did uh, commercial and residential specialty skylight systems, hmm. uh, so I started doing that. High school. Drawing or building? Drawing and manufacturing and installing. Okay. So, uh, so during the school year, we, 
I, I did most of the drafting and detailing for them. Uh, and over the summer, it was a combination of the drafting and designing, working out in the shop, fabricating metals, uh, heating and blowing acrylic uh, skylights, and actually getting out into the field and installing those. Wow. Yeah, so nothing better than four guys in a cheap hotel room in Houston. <laughs> At 17 years old. Exactly. <laughs> I can only imagine. I did not know that. That's interesting. That's probably, that experience probably resonates with some of our listeners because, again, there's a lot of first, second, third generation folks in this business that grew up and it started as teenagers, as installers or drafters or or whatever it was, pushing broom on a floor. I did not know that. That's fascinating. Yeah. And then there was a short stint working for an independent. Oh, the guy refurbished uh, rail cars out of the Collinwood, old Collinwood yards here in Cleveland. And we had made a connection when I was about 17 or 18. So I worked for him about two or three years on a part-time basis, detailing and refurbishing uh, century-old rail cars. Uh, so it's not just a contemporary trend. It is not. <laughs> What did they refurb them to do? Uh, the rail cars that they do for tourists. Uh, we actually did one for Cuyahoga Valley. Okay. Uh, National Rail here in Ohio. Uh, we did them for a couple other uh, tourists and uh, I guess just tourist site uh, mm-hmm. attractions around the country. That's a good piece of history, the Collinwood Yards. That would have been back in the Danny Green era. Mid-late 70s? Post-Danny Green. Post-Danny Green. Thank God for that. We won't go down that path. Yeah, it was uh, another interesting exposure. It was uh, nice driving there and getting inside the building and... I'll bet it was. ...hunkering down. (laughs) Cool. Um, And then did you go to Blue Line after that? Uh, I actually... uh, Yeah, I continued with uh, Mid-American Shelters and... uh, this other part-time work through most of my college career. And then uh, just prior to graduation, had uh, gotten an offer from Blue Line Design, who at that point in time was doing a lot of drafting and uh, initial detailing work for the CCG group of PPG here in Ohio. Tell people what CCG stands for. CCG, CCG was Commercial Construction Group. It was the high-end, high-performance glazing leg of PPG industry back in the late 70s and into the mid-80s, uh, focused on high-rise custom curtain wall. I think its initial origins were focused around trying to keep the... PPG's glass plants and the Kokomo extrusion plant uh, full and upline. We obviously exceeded a lot of that. We started using second and third party extrusion facilities. And I think all the glass on our, our jobs was sourced through PPG, but it was a yeah. main source by which to keep that flow going. Interesting. So PPG had their own glass fabrication plant at Ford City, right? Yes. So Blue Line was working with them, and then how did you get to PPG? Uh, Blue Line was doing a, a lot of the initial detailing for the Akron CAMS, uh, Commercial Architectural Metal Systems Group here in Akron, Ohio. Uh, 
and I actually applied for a position at PPG and create a little bit of angst between <laughs> the CAMS group in Akron and uh, Blue Line Design and eventually made a transition over uh, to PPG. I believe that was in 1987. Was it that late? Oh, no, 18, 1982. Because I started in 84. Yeah, 1982 I started there. 1982, yeah. okay. And were you drawing or were you project managing? I started as a drafter detailer there. Uh, I actually worked on the PPG Corporate Headquarters project. That was my first project with, with the organization. The I Glass did a, Castle. The Glass Castle in downtown Pittsburgh. I did all the detailing and drawing, fab, fabrication drawings as well for the interior lobby and a number of the caps on the spires that uh, topped off that project, for those of you that are familiar with it. Yeah, so if anybody might happen to not know what we're talking about, we're talking about the PPG facility in Pittsburgh, the glass tower looks like a glass castle. It's got a bunch of glass spires, and it was really a unique building at the time. It was an iconic structure, and yeah, it was the glass palace. <laughs> yeah, glass palace. So, uh, and then I continued on a number of other projects. I started uh, detailing Dallas Main Center, what at the t- which at the time was probably the largest project that uh, the CCG Group had been engaged with. One Redis, one Reading Center in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, there was a job in Albuquerque that I did all the detailing on, and eventually transitioned into a project management role as the business grew. And I guess that would have been probably about 1983, or probably about 1984 when you came on board. Okay. So really, a short-lived career as a draftsman, which is what. All of my collegiate training was built around. And right. Then uh, fortunate enough to be with an aggressively growing operation and provided new opportunities and took advantage of that. Yeah, that's... I, I think it's interesting, the path. A lot of people listening, if they're familiar with the industry, they'll find it of value because um, everybody seems to take a different path into this business, some more traditional, some less so. But uh, it really was explosive growth back then. We didn't know we were on the front end of something that was brand new and was going to really define a lot of the architecture in the United States and around the world. At least I wasn't. How about you? No, absolutely. I agree. I think the key words there are, we didn't know. You know, <laughs> yes, yeah. uh, there was a lot of us uh, not separated by a lot of years of experience. Fortunately, we had, you know, a small, tight knit group, people like Gary McKissick and Bill Keenling and later on uh, a Steve Evans, who had practical experience in the industry. Right. But for the most part, we were scrambling and, and cobbling it together on a day to day basis. And as I make my way into Cities like Chicago and Dallas and L.A. and Philadelphia, and you look at those projects that we were part of 30-plus years ago. Yeah. Uh, there's some amazement that they're still standing. <laughs> yeah. and maybe some more that they're, they've Not performed leaking. as well as they have. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, you know, what does this have to do with future trends? We're not getting there yet, but the common thread 
always in the curtain wall industry has been innovation and change and growth. And people even enter in it, entering the industry and the business with, there's no traditional training. There's no traditional educational background. Yeah, now there's a program at USC and there's some programs in the UK and around, but it's, it's always been a business that attracted a certain type of person, a certain creative. We got people from industrial engineering backgrounds, mechanical, civil, architecture, field, shop, craftsmen, liberal arts degrees, families that were in the business. So um, I find it a really relevant conversation because that part doesn't seem to have changed too much to me. No, it's uh, even as we interview for new positions in our organization today, uh, you don't have anybody walking in the door who's bragging about their experience and expertise in curtain wall design and engineering. Right. Uh, they're bragging about, you know, the project that they did senior year at School of Architecture, wherever that might be, or, you know, the last cell phone tower that they designed. And they walk into our office, and it is a totally different branch of anything that they've ever encountered before. But I think the thing that's compelling to anybody who chooses to pursue the career is we leave a defining face on the landscape of America. You know, it's we're not designing toilets, we're not designing elevators, we are designing. The visual aspects of what people see as they walk down Main Street in any downtown or commercial center in the country. And uh, that's a reflection of the work that we do. Yeah, I agree. No offense to Otis Elevator or American Standard <laughs> Toilets, which we couldn't live without. Right. But I always tell people, what could be more interesting than working on the defining architectural component of the building? I mean... Certainly there's other components with the massing and shaping and landscape architecture and stuff. But when it comes to the facade, you recognize a building by its skin, by what you see. And uh, building owners don't want to look like the next guy down the block. They want their own stamp on it. So, yeah, I, I, I know my children growing up probably got tired of hearing, oh, look, we worked on that. Oh, look, we worked on that. But that is one of the fun parts of it. Oh, that's the best part. Uh, you know, I've been fortunate enough that I've had experience on construction sites, not only locally, you know, across this country, throughout North America and several parts of the world as well. So uh, being able to take advantage of uh, working with a vast number of people uh, who represented a number of different trades within our industry, all to create, you know, an envelope of a building that, you know, is iconic, is, you know, a reflection of a city or a people. It's, uh, it's been an exciting career. Yeah, that's great. I want to segue for a second back into the, your experience and your, your time at Tremco. Um, ultimately, you were the VP of tech services there, right? Yes. I spent several years in that position. But kind of talk about your tenure at Tremco. Um, most of our listeners will be very familiar with Tremco. And then your national and international experience, kind of what that brings to the table for you. Yeah, I spent the early part of my career, as we discussed, with PPG. That gave me an entry point into the glass and glazing uh, 
space. And uh, as the economy started to wind down a bit in the late 80s, there was an opportunity that had evolved at Tremco on, uh, with their glazing products, uh, both residential and commercial, uh, extruded rubber products, silicones, uh, everything from butyls and acrylics and anything else that can be used in a glazing application, whether it be from the most rudimentary of residential applications to high-performance glazing. Uh, so I joined them in 1987, um, and, you know, a very dynamic environment to work in. Uh, really? Exciting from the standpoint that uh, it was an organization that really gave you an opportunity to kind of go where you wanted to go as long as you made the personal investment in terms of you know, knowledge and experience and uh, create a vision of what you would like to do and where would you like to go. Um, and the early part of that journey took me into, you know, a lot of adjacent product lines, waterproofing, sealants, coatings, fire stopping, and really anything that had to do with air water, uh, keeping that out of a building and, you know, just... Uh, total weatherproofing of a building structure. And uh, as my experience and expertise increased in those areas, uh, I got into what probably wasn't the most glamorous of positions, but it was certainly the most challenging as it relates to, you know, construction litigation, which unfortunately is almost a natural byproduct of what happens in our industry. Uh, and... That gave me great experience getting it out onto literally hundreds of job sites throughout the country, uh, working side by side with a number of the major architectural engineering and consultative uh, companies uh, in America, and rubbing elbows, sharing war stories, you know, looking over shoulders and, you know, understanding why people took a certain approach in the work that they did. And I think probably the most satisfying aspect of that piece was establishing relationships. And even though you were in a very contentious uh, situation, a lot of potential conflict, uh, the relationship always sustained, and you felt like you're always able to pull business through that uh, by, you know, negotiating and being fair and honest with the people that you were working with. Uh, and that's basically been my reputation as I've gone through, you know, my 30 plus years in the industry. I, I don't, I haven't sacrificed that for anybody. <laughs> that's good. Cause in the end, all we've got is our integrity. That's right. It was always very important to me. It's, uh, so did that for a number of years. Uh, and then, uh, Tremco had been owned by the BF Goodrich Company for a period of time. Uh, they were sold off to the RPM Group in 1997, and that opened up a door to a lot of different opportunities as they consolidated uh, sealant waterproofing manufacturers that they had in their portfolio of companies. And uh, that opened the door to me going, uh, working in foreign markets, initially in Latin America and the Caribbean, uh, over a longer period of time in the Middle East, and then uh, ultimately accepting a relocation to Southeast Southeast Asia, where I spent about four years of my career, uh, 
Where specifically? I live in Singapore um, and basically covering everything from Tokyo over through to down to Australia and as far west as uh, India and Pakistan. Wow. So, uh, again, getting on a lot of other iconic structures, you know, whether it be the Sydney Opera House or Patronus Towers in Kuala Lumpur, uh, you know, and just having the experience in terms of, you know, a lot of second and third world e economies that wanted to make that step into a 20th century culture and uh, structure as a way to do that, new buildings and we're going into environments where oftentimes you were challenged on accessibility to not only the talent or skilled labor to execute the work, but something as rudimentary as the tools necessary to do it. Yeah. And oftentimes having to ad lib in real time to be able to execute the project and get the work done. Well, part of what I'm hearing, and hopefully it's resonating with the audience, is you know, here's this guy who's a branch leader for Wheaton Sprague, but you know, you're we're, we're building on your experience. So, you started in design and drafting. You moved into project management. You've done manufacturing. You've done design. You've done project management. You've done testing. Now you're with Tremco. Now you're not just exposed to glass and glazing, but all waterproofings, right? Sealants, gaskets, waterproofings what applied, any, anything. Anything, roof coatings, below-grade membranes, right. you know, residential, the commercial. The full facade, full. Yeah. In, yeah. even decking. Um, and not only nationally, but internationally. And you mentioned some great buildings like the Petronas Towers in Kuala Lumpur, Sydney Opera House, and I know there's many, many more. You mentioned a lot of the... Cons I know a lot of the consultants you interacted with nationally and internationally, right? Yes, so I think you bring a unique perspective to the table for somebody who's been uh, on multiple sides and in multiple countries. Yeah, and that's, you know, been the exciting part of my journey, you know, in my career. Uh, it's every experience I've had, I look back and I've taken something from that. and It's made me what I am today. It's made me uh, appreciate our industry from a lot of different perspectives. And... Uh, you know, it's helped, I feel in some way, I've tra helped transform the, the industry. Uh, you know, during my time at Tremco, we introduced and brought online 3D printing when it was, you know, in its infancy in the industry. Uh, we launched, did the initial launch on our own, launch in our own internal test lab. And for those of you who follow, uh, Tremco or have worked with them, you know, that that's become an integral part of their strategy. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, the technical leadership that I, you know, provided and had the opportunity to work with and train and develop people within the organization. Uh, and that leadership continues on there. It's just been, it's been fruitful to watch people benefit from, you know, how we collaborated, shared learnings uh we always used to say fail fast you know don't don't let the absence of making a decision stop us you know that's a good culture and uh you know make some mistakes learn from those mistakes share them don't repeat them and you know march forward 
Did you, uh, for those of you maybe familiar or unfamiliar, there's a mock-up facility at Tremco in Beachwood, Ohio. Was that your proposal to the organization? It was. We started it early on in the days at, at the origins of uh, Air, Air Barrier Association of America and the, the testing that was required uh, and developing uh, with that industry. Uh, we got to a crossroads of having to spend X amount of money to done, do party, uh, I'm sorry, to do testing via third parties. Uh, and we developed a plan where for similar money, we could establish our own internal test facility, uh, sanction it via independent third parties, and execute that test for slightly less money than what the initial investment was going to be. Uh, then that ended up uh, becoming a strategic part of what we did as we moved forward. We started out as, a, I think, a eight-foot or eight eight foot by eight foot or 10 foot by 10 foot buck that sat in the corner of one of our manufacturing facilities, confiscated space there. And now it uh, occupies a much larger room. And I think the most recent wall we've got is 20 foot by 30 foot. Is it inside or outside? It's an indoor chamber. Okay. Yeah. And it's great designed around collaboration with industry partners. Uh, Do they bring in third party certifier? Yes. Great. You mentioned uh, 3D printing. I just brought in a couple of our 3D print extrusions. We can talk about that more in a minute. Got some gaskets here. Yep. <laughs> so I know you're familiar with gaskets. We got some memorabilia in the office. So I part of why I wanted you involved in this discussion is you've got, I, I believe you've got a lot of credibility I mean, I know that to be the case, and now hopefully our listeners do, because, again, you've been involved in almost every aspect of the curtain wall facade industry, from a performance, a technical services, a product development, nationally, internationally. I mean, we could spend the rest of this time just sharing war stories about mock-ups and mock-up chambers and tracking leaks and some funny things, but we're not going to do that. Thank God. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, experiences at construction research down in Florida, experiences at York, and experiences at Mid-America, all over the place. So uh, I'm sure a lot of these phrases are resonating with people. So anything else you want to share about your Tremco experience and how that creates relevance? It, it just served as the basis for what I think are the two, most, two, two of the more important components of how we execute our work here and you know first piece of that is the collaboration and you know sustaining building and sustaining long-term relationships with customers uh, and the other is is process which is so important to getting to your goal whether that's you know completing design development whether it's getting through a first submittal whether it's putting the first stick of metal or the first unit on a building uh, or or topping out, uh, it's you've got to have a plan, and uh, it's something that I think got embedded in me, and a skill that got well developed and honed during my time at Tremco. Yeah, I would agree. So now you're—I know you worked at Sherwood Williams. Now you're here. Let's jump to here. Yeah. So describe your role 
here and kind of how those past experiences help play into that? Well, it's, I think the role here is extremely dynamic. It's different every day. I, I remember our initial discussions in terms of what the job description was or what we thought it was. And uh, y- you come in every day and, I mean, we have a multitude of projects at different phases, uh, some of them full service, some of them engineering only, some of them shop drawing only, uh, some of them engaging you know, uh, collaborative relate relationships with the industry. And, uh, I'm afforded an opportunity every day to try. I think my specialty is helping solve problems, helping get to the middle ground, helping to keep that ball moving forward. You're, you're trying to get to the goal line. Yeah. Uh, and I don't like doing a lot of end of, end of rounds. I like charging up the middle and, uh, you know, I, I get to work with engineers who have 25 years experience. I get to work with, you know, new hires who don't know a lot about our industry. So share knowledge and experience with them. But at the end of the day, it's about getting our customers what they need, when they need it, need it and doing it, uh, you know, within a budget that we've, you know, agreed to them with. Yeah. And those are all very challenging uh tasks that you know walk through the door every day and deal with yeah so we're we're dealing with unitized curtain wall projects stick curtain wall projects panels uh artificial stone materials and every component known to humankind as an infill material or hanging out railing custom rails exterior you name it you're seeing it all Yes, we see it all, and then the variety of customers that we get to work with. I mean, each of those, we're all in the same space, but they're all unique relationships. Yeah. Uh, They all have different levels of experience. They all have a service bar or relationship bar that they want us to execute, and it's for each of them, it's a slight bit different. Yeah. Yeah. and which is interesting because uh, that in itself is a continual continual learning process. And I think one of the things that I've learned over you know the last couple of years here is that you know the end product or the end goal is is all the same, but how each of our cust- how we interact with each of our customers is slightly different. Uh, the dynamics are different. Their experiences are different. Their team members, you know, have varying levels of experience and knowledge and you know a lot of what they expect is based on history have they done it themselves internally and now they're utilizing a third party like ourselves to help with the design drafting fabrication drawings engineering we've seen a lot of that in the industry over the last few years where maybe that internal structure that a uh, a glazing contractor had is dissolved for whatever reason and they're looking to use a party like ourselves to assist with that so they have their old expectations and i think we bring something different and we it figuring out that path together is it can be challenging but it's a lot of fun at the same time yeah i think you made a comment in there we'll come back to when we're talking about some of the challenges and 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 such but you know every customer is unique Every project is unique, and I think 
we have to begin with what does the customer want to achieve? How do they physically want to build this? And then work backwards. In other words, I always say that design and engineering doesn't dictate, it supports. We're the tail on the dog, if you will. We're the support element that listen to the installer, listen to the manufacturer, listen to the fabricator, and work with them to help them achieve their unique approach to the work. Because we know two jobs being built across the street from each other with union glazing or iron worker crews with stick walls, both of those would be sequenced and constructed in a different manner if it was with different glazing subs. Absolutely. Different right. anchorage, different connection, everything. Yeah, and I mean, for as much standardization as the layperson in our industry may look at, uh, every, every customer is unique, every project's unique. Uh, everything from, you know, fasteners to, you know, brake metal capabilities or anchorage preferences, you know, it's different for, in some unique way, whether it be large or small, for almost every customer. It is, yeah. And uh, that's the detail that, uh, you know, me and my staff have to be sensitive to as we try to, you know, hone and uh, enhance that relationship, uh, ask those questions up front and just create a good basis point f for us to move forward on a project. Yeah, I agree. Um, okay, so before we begin, just in one more question, just in terms of how we inform our final part of our discussion. So you are a PMP, Project Management Professional. Talk to us about what the PMP is, mm -hmm. how it has helped inform you, and what you think it brings to the delegated design engineering and subcontracting industry. Yeah, well, the PMP certification is, uh, I, I think it was just an extension of my commitment to a lot of the process orientation that I had gotten at Tremco. And uh, when that relationship dissolved, I, you know, one of the first things I f sought out was to get myself certified in something and that seemed like a natural extension of the experience that I had had uh, and it's not undifferent I'm you know I'm a I'm a uh, I'm a uh, black belt in uh, in process uh, I've got a lot of that training at at Tremco I leveraged it at Tremco uh, and solving the natural part of solving problems is developing processes to get there. Uh, and the PMP certifications is, is a manifestation of that. Uh, you know, it focuses on, you know, the proposal. It, it focuses extensively on scheduling and uh, being able to identify critical path and understanding what limits are uh, of staff and how do you, you know, assign responsibilities, how do you schedule those, uh, you know, all with the ultimate goal of, you know, executing on time and in budget uh, and, and really just having a plan and a path for execution of the work that you're going to do. Is PMP similar to 
like you mentioned, being a black belt, that's in what ISO. Yeah, ISO certification. Certification. Yeah. Yeah. So is PMP the the project management version of that similar? I, or I think it is. I think the the thought process and the expertise that's required. Uh, it's all about execution and getting things done. Systematizing. And uh, not that it necessarily has to be exactly the same every time, because I don't think we have the luxury of that in our industry. Every job is different, and, you know, there's jobs you're running wildly ahead. Most of the time you're racing to keep up. And, you know, with any process, it's all about reacting to what's happening in real time. Uh, so... While you want to have a process, you got to be flexible within that process to be able yeah. to respond and adjust as the situation evolves. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's one of the key factors, and uh, certainly in our industry, probably any industry, is that flexibility to adjust. Uh, I mean, the one of the managers I had the pleasure to work with in the past, one of one of his sayings was, and this was during the financial collapse back in 2006, 2007, was control the controllables. The things that we own, we've got to be good at. Uh, you know, the things that we, you know, that come into us from the outside, yeah, we've got to be able to, you know, shuffle and, you know, zigzag our way through those things. They can't be barriers. Yeah, they might be obstacles, but they can't be barriers. And uh, I think we could, got to find ways to execute around those every day. I like that obstacles, not barriers. Because some people say, oh, it's not a challenge, it's an opportunity. Well, that's true, but sometimes that feels a little shallow, doesn't it? But to talk, talk about something being, you know, a speed bump is an obstacle, but you can still drive over it, right? Absolutely. I like that because it puts a positive spin on it. Um, uh, one of the points I want to make to our listeners is, from what I've seen, because there's another gentleman, maybe he's going to listen, maybe not, Hussein Saruri with Wausau. He used to be with Walters and Wolf, and he's a PMP, and I, we just had a conversation with him this week. And, and he said the same thing. He said, you know, I'm a lifelong learner, and I, and I took the PMP because I, not because I wanted to know how to manage projects better. He already knows how to do that, but just the systematic growth and knowledge and the tools involved. And so for folks listening who maybe they didn't get a traditional architecture degree or engineering degree, they're not in that union trade where they can get a certification, I would highly recommend the PMP because you can you can study and get that certification. And I believe those certifications are really important in our industry, but also in the business, in the professional services side of our business. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, there's so many certifications that you can get out there, whether, you know, especially in our space, Yeah. Uh, you know, you can, CSI has air courses, barrier, you know, beef, you know, uh, Oh God, having a, having a brain fart here. So it's okay, <laughs> but there are tons of them that you can, produce and I am you know as I've expressed to you I'm a big believer in you know individual ownership of continual training yeah. and you know in continuing to invest in your career uh, I think you know, organizations own a small piece of that 
but the individual who, you know, wants to evolve their career and evolve themselves, they've got to have a continual learning type mindset. Yeah, that's well said. And especially in this business where... Things are constantly changing. It's always evolving. It's always changing. People are always pushing the envelope. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah, um, exactly. Literally. It's, it's, you know, in our, on our side of the business, I mean, we, we're asked to sign confidentiality agreements and so forth. Everybody thinks they've always got a better mousetrap and, you know, not to take anything away from the people who are designing it. Right. A lot of what we do is variations on a theme. It's, yeah, we see it's, it all. It's, it's, it's an evolution. Right. Uh, you know, it's, and there's a lot of jobs where, you know, it looks great on paper, the, you know, the, the idea conception is sound, uh, you know, you struggle through a mock-up and then you go onto the job and it's, it's a struggle there and you walk away and you say, well, I'm not going to do that on the next job. We can right. certainly do something better. Right. <laughs> uh, and I think that's the foundation of our industry. We've seen that since, you know, you and I worked together at PPG, you know, 35 years ago. And, yeah. you know, I, I, every job becomes an opportunity to learn something new and to push the ball forward a little bit more. You know, that that dialogue from you, it just prompted, you know, that whole thought that with glass and aluminum and gaskets and sealants and all the other things, there I have never seen two jobs the same in 30-plus years. I mean, I've done thousands of projects. I've never seen two jobs the same. Two, no two jobs are the same, and even if they look the same, they are not the same inside. It's always evolving it's always changing and i find that one of the fun parts of this business it is every day is a new opportunity uh you know i mean there's plenty of conair 1600 walls out there but right you know as you see the evolution over time of uh of various systems i mean you got sunshades and all these other things that get added to what was a you know, the predominant standard wall system, which is, you know, no longer standard. You go on to that website and you see how many iterations of 1600 wall yeah. and then... Dash one, dash two, dash three, dash... And then the next set of architectural shows a 1600 wall with something else on it. Right. So, uh, and it's, you know, it is, it's a continual evolution. And, you know, and that goes down to, you know, the installation teams involved and all the other resources that get pulled in to try to execute that job. I would love to get a count of the number of unique dies that have been created since the late 70s in this business. There's got to be millions of custom dies. Oh, it's got to be. Millions. I think one of the most astounding things to me when I you know, came back in and was exclusively focused on the glass and glazing industry when I joined your organization two years ago was the cost of dyes. I mean, we used yeah. to, it got, in the 19, early 1980s, dyes were 300, 500. You know, they were negotiated. They were almost a toss-in with the aluminum manufacturers just to get the business so they could sell the aluminum. And now, you know, the individual cost of dyes uh, is... You know, it's it's a significant number, but yeah. it doesn't seem to deter anybody from getting them. <laughs> we see 
jobs where customers have a line item of over $100,000 for dyes. Yeah, exactly. Easily. Yeah. 60, 70, 50 new dyes on a project. Yeah, and it just plays to, you know, uh, the uniqueness of the structures that the architectural community is driving as they design and, you know, drive work uh, in the, not only this country, but, you know, overseas. Agreed. Well, let's, let's hit on, uh, we're well into halfway or past halfway. So let's get into some of our other questions here. Just quick impressions, dialogue. How good a job do we do at training and onboarding in our industry? Wow. <laughs> Is that too big of a topic? It's not too big of a topic. I think that I think Too that's a subject a that every organization and every industry struggles with. Uh, you know, uh, I think the advantage that you have in our industry, at least from the site, is that people have the advantage of being able to get out there. And, you know, there's journeyman and apprentice programs that help advance and let people learn. And for a lot of people, there's nothing better than on-site, real-time learning. Now, a lot of people yeah. learn best that way. Uh, when you look at like a professional services organization, uh, onboarding and getting people up to speed in our space, is it's, it's a long-term commitment by both the organization and the employee. Yeah. Uh, they've got to be engaged in that process because, uh, again, it is constantly changing. We're not pumping out the same product day after day. So bringing right. somebody on board, you're looking for those, that creative mind. You're looking for somebody who wants to be challenged on a day-to-day -day basis and who has an appetite for continual learning and ask the questions. Uh, if, if, you're, if your thought is that you're going to come into an organization like this or probably in any organization and be able to go into a cubicle or your office or whatever your work environment is and not engage with people and, and not ask, uh, you know, leading questions, uh, you're going to, you're going to struggle in your personal development and succeeding in your career. Boy, I think you really said all of that very well. And, uh, if any of the listeners are thinking of a career change or you have children who are unsure I'm telling you, whether they get in the trades or whether they get on the professional side of it, I mean, it's all professional, but whether they get in the design and project management side or procurement side or whether the field, it's a really worthy endeavor. And I, I've met so many fantastic tradespeople in this business. I, they're the folks that really get it done. Glazers and iron workers that are second to none. Yeah, that's... And, you know, I'm fortunate I've got children that are in their late teens and into their mid-20s, and you, you surround yourself with their friends, and you get to hear a conversation at, you know, when they come over, and, you know, they're struggling their way through college. They can't wait to be done with school so they don't have to open a book again or yeah. write a report. Good and, luck with that. And I'm just, I'm just like... No, this is just the entry point. This is the beginning of lifelong education. This gets you to the door. What keeps you in the building is continuing to learn. Right. And we should say that, you know, because I've been involved on one of the committees. In fact, I was involved on the project management committee. The National Glass Association has a tremendous set of training modules 
field, shop, office, uh, everything from how to do shop drawings, how to manage projects, supply chain. So that's a good one, too. That's some great inputs, Mike. Thanks for that. Um, do you see any bigger entry barriers to, into our industry in the future um, related to the type of education that is available out there and then entering the industry? Well, I think, you know, unique challenges, I don't think so. I think that there is there's going to be a continued struggle as uh, with people's perspective on, you know, the merits of manual labor versus, you know, intellectual labor. Yeah. Uh, you know, white collar, blue collar, however you want to phrase it. Uh, and, you know, so much of, you know, youth and generation prior to us is focused on, you know, white collar type environment. And it's hard to sustain the trains as trades. I know we've seen, you know, tremendous exodus in our industry, you know, back in 2006, 2007, 2008, as the economy, you know, collapsed. That's uh, true. We, we had a lot of senior people who, you know, just had kind of said, I've lived through so many of these cycles, they were in a good enough position that they could afford to retire. So we lost that knowledge. You know, the people who were in the middle ground, you know, in their 40s or, you know, early 50s, maybe they were saying, well, I'm tired of this, you know, five to seven year cycle. I'm going to go get myself into a space that I don't have to worry about this anymore because I do want to retire a certain age. So we lost that group of uh, that body of knowledge. Uh, and we've got, a, you know, I think what we see on a day to day basis is a, a real knowledge gap. Uh, not that people aren't trying to work hard and get their job done right, but we've lost some, l lost some experience at almost every organization that we work with. We've seen that, you know, we see that within our own organization as, as people, you know, move in and out. And it's difficult to fill that gap uh, when it evolves. And, uh, you know, fortunately... I think for organizations that can sustain a steady backlog of, of work and who engage their workforce uh, and challenge them on a daily basis, uh, you know, some of that knowledge and experience, we're going to start to close that gap. But it was a gap to fill. And, you know, I know we're 10 to 12 years removed from that. But when you lose that much knowledge and that much experience in such a short period of time, and then, you know, saying economy or slower recovery on the economy doesn't really bring people back into the industry as quickly as you would like. It's, yeah. it's we've had we've had a real learning curve there with a number of uh, in a number of areas. Whether it's you know site superintendents, just you know quality labor in the field, quality labor in the design. Delegated design service. Yes, yeah. we, we've we've all struggled yes. with it in one form or another. I'm really glad you brought that up because we've had this discussion at some of the conventions and seminars as well. But it is true there is a big experience gap. Some of the people that left the industry when the recession hit, they they were never coming back. And the experienced folks that said, "I'm done," they were never coming back. So there's a 10 to 15, in some cases a 20 or 30 year gap. I think that there's been a lot of good efforts to close it, but I think I see this as one of the 
trends to continue for us in our business industry to be conscious of to to really seek to retain people i don't you can't make up the experience but you can certainly seek to accelerate and to retain so thank you for that that's a good one um you see any big changes from past to present in terms of the performance of the wall exterior facade glass and glazing well i mean there's you know Local, regional, national codes, international codes, you know. Uh, I mean, it's, I'm always interested. It seems like Europe is, runs a five-to-year, five-to-ten-year cycle ahead of us in terms of advancements and so forth, as, in particular as it relates to energy efficiency and, you know, uh, renewable resources and things like that. So I think there's another wave that's waiting for us, uh, once we get to, you know, renewed economic stability. Uh, but I think, you know, the things that don't seem to change that can be most concerning for us is just, you know, the the effort and the success in uh, communication, collaboration, and alignment. Uh, that, that sounds so basic. Uh, but, you know, we've got so many ways we can communicate, whether it's social media, email, text, phone call, uh, you know, fax for people that still might use that. That still does exist. <laughs> and you know, it's, it seems like that becomes the daily struggle. Uh, and yeah. I think part of it's, you know, just complicated by the fact that there's so many modes of communication that some people can be overwhelmed by that. Uh, and, you know, as you're responding to not only individual requirements on a project, but also trying to keep in mind all of the codes and practice and, you know, performance expectations and so forth, uh, sustaining that communication and the follow-up and the alignment with the people that you're working with, which, you know, for us that can be our most immediate customer. It could be the architect. It could be an engineer. It can be a consultant. It can be anybody that we get any conversation we get supply chain that's right and uh you know that continues to be i think some of the biggest challenges i mean when it comes to code and evolution of performance of the wall uh we're not unlike any other industry the automotive industry had hurdles that they had to get over in terms of safety performance and you know mileage per gallon you know ours is on thermal performance or wind load performance, if you happen to be, you know, an Atlantic coast area or Gulf coast. Ballistic requirements. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we find the technologies there, uh, you know, and a lot of those codes evolve because of capabilities and technologies that are developed that can be a benefit to the performance of the wall and to the safety of the occupants of that building. I'm telling you, I think, because I blog about this all the time too. I think the collaboration, communication, alignment piece is the defining separator. I mean, let's let's say that all all the tools and technical capabilities being equal in on the client side and on professional services side and everything in between. I I think the differentiator is the communication and collaboration. There's still some dissidence, and I don't believe it's gotten better. I actually believe it's gotten worse with all the communication tools. We certainly see it here. Um, 
I think it comes from a variety of factors and it is the number one predictor of either project success or project failure. And it's the number one reason for claims in the construction industry, lack of communication. Yeah, it, it is. And it's the follow-up and the, you know, connectivity. It's, uh, you know, it's typing an email and hitting the send button or typing a text and sending that. Okay. I think that there's, I hate to call it laziness because that's not it. I mean, you've, you, you've affected work. You've done that piece of it. But uh, it seems like the regression that takes place after the send button is hit. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's an, um, like, the implication is I've done the work and finished the task. And if you're sending a final deliverable, that's true. But in most cases, if it's an ongoing communication, yep. oh, I push the button and press, I'm going to forget about it now, but what's the follow-up? Right, and it's just, I mean, we use sports analogies a lot here, you know. its The play isn't over after the quarterback hands the ball off to the running back. There's right. blocking and tackling that has to go on in order for that ball to move forward. Right. And in our industry, the communication, the collaboration, the alignment, that's the blocking and tackling. That's yeah. the stuff that has to happen in real time. And if people don't follow through on that piece. And, you know, it's there's still a manual aspect to what we do, keeping that log of these are the things that I owe somebody or these are the things that I have to get back to. Uh, because pushing send doesn't dissolve you of the responsibility of getting the, getting the work done. Oh, that's so well said. Pushing send does not uh, absolve you of the responsibility to get the work done. You know, and that's you know, well said. Yeah, and, you know, from... Your experience with me here, I'm, uh, there's always a middle ground. There's always a point that you can get to to keep the ball moving forward. Yeah. Uh, you know, customer may have a demand. We may have a limitation as to what we can do to meet their demands. But, man, a well-placed email or preferably, and I know there's people out there that struggle with this, pick up the phone and have a personal conversation yeah. with the person on the other end. Right. Uh, nothing's more infuriating than a prolonged chain of emails that just don't seem to move that ball forward. You right. Know? Pick oh, up the phone, well have, have a conversation, and figure out what that middle ground is. What do you need? When do you need to buy? And how do I satisfy that for you? Do you think that, I mean, one of my questions was, what's the number one struggle in executing work as, in, as a delegated design professional? Do you think that's number one or just one of the important items i think it's i think it's the number one challenge that we face we can solve everything else yeah you know we you know through engineering through design you know through fabrication we can do it the things that slow things down you know whether it be outbound product from our end which is communication or or, or i'm sorry calculations or or drawings or the inbound, you know, information or drawings or something from a, you know, our customer, a third party. When there's delays in that, that just has, you know, prolonged effects on the entire project. And right. keeping those things moving in real time is, you know, very, very important. Well, with the, the few minutes here, we want to finish up. I, one more quick topic question. What's your observation on BIM work? Um, in our space and the BIM platforms? 
It's a continuing evolution. I think it's, it's interesting because like everything else we do, it varies from customer to customer. I think uh, as it relates to the glazing contractor, it's, it, from where I sit, it, it feels like it's almost just a necessary evil. It's not something that we've totally embraced, you know, and, you know, when you talk about BIM, there's, uh, BIM, there's several platforms there. And, you know, is it Revit? Is it Inventor? Is it Rhinoceros? Is it Grasshopper? You know, what's the collection? You know, I think there's, you know, if you're on the fabrication side of things, Inventor is an appealing, you know, uh, aspect of BIM. You know, if you're a glazing contractor who's trying to satisfy a level 300 or level 500, you know, Revit requirement on a job that almost seems like more of an inconvenient hurdle than it does a necessity to you getting your work done. It's something that's part of the contract that I've somehow got to fulfill. Uh, you know, and it's interesting documentation shared by, you know, our colleague Richard Sprague today as it relates to, you know, Autodesk and some of the challenges that the industry is throwing back onto Autodesk as it relates to development and alignment of their software and that was in regards to Revit, correctly. Right. Yeah, that was Revit. Uh, and, and that was a large group of international architects that basically wrote back to CEO and said, you got to get your act together. So. Yeah, it's, and it, I don't think they're being challenged anyway, any differently than anybody else who has a prominent position in yeah. whatever space they right. serve. You know, uh, you're there for your customers. And uh, we've got a group out there that's concerned that they're not getting as much as they should from the pr predominant supplier in our space. Uh, but it's an evolution. I mean, we're, we have, you know, here at Wheaton and Sprague, you've tried, you know, we've had starts and stops a couple of times on our BIM journey. Uh, we seem to have, you know, some very solid momentum right now. Uh, some of that comes from, you know, customer collaboration. Some of it comes from us taking what is a very logical step in our evolution to meet our customers' requirements and hopefully differentiate ourselves in the business. So uh, it's not going away. Uh, I think we all need to embracing it as a that's that's a tough concept, but it's it's what's going to happen. We're it's going to impact everything that we do. It's going to streamline, uh, you know, manufacturing. It should streamline communication between various parties. Uh, right now, it seems like an all-consuming task. You've got, you know, live Revit models that are constantly being updated, and you know, in real time. How do you keep up with that? Uh, how do you track changes? How do you assign accountabilities? And I think the industry is still adjusting to all that as they, you know, try to you know, integrate and bring that technology into their portfolio with, of project execution. Yeah, that's, that's for sure. It is here to stay, as you, as you say, and we know a number of folks that are implementing in different ways. Um, so that, that's a good spot to stop on the BIM conversation. That's a deep well as well, but Everybody should know that building information modeling software and mentality, and as we've been reminded, it's a mindset. It's not, it's a tool, but it's a mindset. Um, it's a completely different approach. That is here to stay. It and needs to be embraced. And it's a journey. 
It's a journey, like everything. We're all figuring it out. Uh, it means something different to everybody. Everybody's taking a slightly different approach to it. Uh, you got to find out what works for your organization. How do you satisfy your customer's need? And, you know, what is, you know, how are you utilizing that to your business success? Yeah. Well, we're going to be concluding here. And I want to go back to one of the last statements you made. We're here for our clients. We should, no one should ever forget we're here for the customer, whether it's direct to consumer, business to business. And uh, we, we exist, all of us, to try to provide value to somebody in the supply chain. One person's problem is another person's value proposition. So uh, thank you for the time. No, thank you very much for inviting me, and it's been a pleasure being here, and it's been good conversation. I'm sure there's plenty of fodder here for us to carry on to our business on a continuing discussion. Yeah, thank you. I agree. So thanks to Mike. Thanks to our engineer, Josh. And uh, thanks to the audience. We look forward to future podcasts. That's all for today. Have a good day.